0: and enjoy.
1: Okay, um, so I'm going to start off with a little speech um, because I am nervous and I wrote it all down so hopefully I won't. Okay, I'm already flopping. Here we go. Worst reading ever. Okay, um, I'm going to start by having a little emotional speech because you guys, so many of you here are my friends. Um, You know, This is my third book, but uh, it feels almost bigger and more important to me in a lot of ways than my first or my second. I thought it would get easier by number three, but it didn't. (laughs) In a lot of ways, I feel like I was kind of starting all over again with this book. Um, My last novel, This Is Where We Live, came out seven years ago. And when I look around the room here, I can see that so many of you I didn't even know back then. in 2009, I gave birth to my daughter Auden, who is here somewhere. Where's Auden? And there she is. Hi. Um, and in 2012, I gave birth to my son Theo, who's over there. Hi, Theo. With my my husband, the bartender. He's a professional bartender over here. There's only two laps. Okay. <laughs> Um, and my children in a nutshell are why it's taken me seven years to get another book out. (laughs) Um, there have been a lot of times in the last seven years when I've turned to my friends who are writers and said, I give up, sit, I'm done, I'm gonna go train to be a barista, this is ridiculous, and I think Erica and Karina have probably heard me say that about a thousand times a piece, where are you Erica and Karina? Yeah, you've heard that, you know what I'm saying, and send it back, exactly. you know, getting a third book out was a real journey. Um, There was a lot of failed attempts uh, at a third book before I even got to this book. I threw away three partially written books before I started this one. And even after I started writing this one, I threw away a lot of failed attempts at the beginning of this too, which any of my readers who read those drafts in the beginning can attest to. You know how bad they were. Um, Writing books is really hard, and it's even harder when you're trying to figure out how to juggle a career and a family at the same time for the first time in your life. But the wonderful thing about having kids, besides, of course, how wonderful they are, is that I've met so many of you equally wonderful people through them, um, through the schools they've gone to and the families and the community in Silver Lake. Um, And I was also lucky enough not long after Auden was born to get uh, involved in a writer's uh, writing space that has eventually evolved into what we call Sweet Eight, which has brought a whole new amazing community into my life. Um, And I'm also really fortunate to have met so many amazing women writers. Um, We have a great community here in Los Angeles. And you guys have been my creative lifeline for the last seven years. And then, of course, there are so many of you in this room who have known me since way, way before children and have been my dear friends for years. Uh, You guys are like family. Um, So really, as I sit up here today, um, I just want to say thank you to all of you for the support and the encouragement, uh, the friendship, and the endless evenings of commiserating over wine. A lot of wine, a lot of wine, (laughs) so much wine. Um, And I honestly don't know if I could have gotten a third book out if it hadn't been for all of you. So, this to you. (laughs) Cheers. Raising a toast to all of you, my friends and community and readers and so on and so forth. So, on to the book. Okay. Um, This is the book. It's called Watch Me Disappear. (laughs) You probably heard me talk about it. Um, and mm-hmm. okay, I will s- slow down a little bit. So, Watch Me Disappear is um, starts with the story of Billy Flanagan, who is a wife and mother from Berkeley, who goes for a hike along um, the Pacific Coast Trail. Pacific Coast, not Pacific Coast. Pacific Crest, thank you, um, in Desolation Wilderness and uh, dies, vanishes. You know, her body is never found, but they find her boot, they find her phone. And then the book begins, it's been a year since she uh, disappeared and was presumed dead. And her daughter, uh, her teenage daughter Olive and her husband Jonathan are trying to kind of move on with their lives and, you know, but they're pretty messed up. So one day, Olive um, has a strange kind of experience that causes her to question whether her mother is really dead. And it sends them down a path of trying to figure out who Billy really was, um, how, much of, how much they really understood of her, and also whether she really is dead after all. Boom, boom, boom. So I'm going to read two sections to you, um, one from Olive's point of view and one from Jonathan point of view. Okay. So this is from Olive's point of view. This takes place at the beginning of the book. Olive is crossing from the sunshine wing to the redwood wing on her way to her third period English class when her dead mother appears for the first time. (laughs) Weaving through the eddies of girls, 26 pounds of textbooks tugging at her shoulder, the blue skirt of her uniform clinging stubbornly to her thighs, Olive suddenly feels as if she might faint. She assumes at first that she's just overheating. Claremont Prep is housed in a rambling 19th century craftsman mansion that has been neglected in the name of authenticity. The knobs to the classroom are all original cut crystal and spin uselessly when you turn them. And the windows don't actually open because they've been lacquered over too many times. And Olive often has to take cold showers after badminton practice because the boiler can't keep up with the demand of 12 girls simultaneously shaving their legs. And on rainy days like this one, the overworked furnace fills the hallways with a moist fug of girl-scented heat. Olive stops and presses her hand against the cool glass of a display case to stabilize herself. She digs in her backpack for a bottle of water and closes her eyes. She feels as if she's standing at the center of a turntable, the hallway whipping around her in dizzying circles. She catches an acrid whiff as if something is burning. When she opens her eyes again, she's somewhere else entirely. Or, rather, she's still in the main hall of Claremont Prep, but somehow she is also somewhere else entirely. A beach, to be exact. The beach isn't really there, of course it's not. And yet, there it is. The overcast sky, the pebbly sand, the dunes lashed with seagrass, waves that are dark and hungry. She can almost feel her Converse sneakers shifting in the sand, the salty air sticking to her skin. This alternate world seems to exist as an overlay draped across her surroundings. Through the waves, Olive is dimly aware of two other junior girls hanging up posters for the fall frolic, and just behind the ragged dunes is a line of lockers, and somewhere inside that thrashing surf is the double-doored entrance of the redwood ring. It's as if the two worlds exist simultaneously, each overlapping the other, a kind of waking dream." She blinks, it doesn't go away. The time they gave her nitrous at the dentist's office, that's how she feels now. Her brain opaque, diffuse, as if someone has reset its dial at half speed. Time seems to have stopped, or at least slowed. The third period bell is ringing somewhere faintly in the distance. That's when she sees her mother. Billy stands a few yards away, right where the sea meets the sand, the water slapping at her bare toes. It's as if she's been standing there the whole time and Olive has only just grown aware of her. Her mother's hair is long and loose, the brown giving way to silver at the part. It flies in a wild halo around her face. She's wearing a gauzy white dress that whips around her bare legs as the wind blows off the sea. Her mom was never a wearer of dresses. She tended towards performance fleece. So this strikes Olive as slightly weird. But still, it's her. Mom. Olive feels the words swell up inside her, painfully filling her lungs until it stops her breath entirely. Olive! Despite her diaphanous appearance, Billy's voice isn't at all spectral. It's strong and clear as if right inside Olive's brain and loud enough to, draw f- to drown out the frothy shrieks of the girls down the hall. Olive opens her own mouth and gasps out the only word she can muster. Mom? Olive, Billy says, her voice lower now, almost chiding. I miss you. Why aren't you looking? Looking for what? What? She's hallucinating, isn't she? She isn't really talking to her dead mom. She closes her eyes and opens them again. Her mom is still there, looking amused. She smiles, revealing deep grooves in her sun-etched face, and she outstretches her hand as if to take Olive's own. Olive, she says with a note of disappointment in her voice, you aren't trying hard enough. There's a burning sensation in Olive's chest that's making it hard to breathe. I'm trying as hard as I can, Mom, Olive whispers, tears welling up in her eyes. But the weird thing is that she doesn't feel sad, not at all. She feels almost transcendent, as if she's this close to getting the answer to some vital question that will make everything clear. And then it comes to her, the answer she's waiting for. It floods her with a giddy rush. Mom isn't dead. So that's one section. So what happens after that is she goes back to tell her dad that she saw her mom and she's convinced that her mom isn't dead and her dad, of course, thinks she's crazy and is losing her mind. Um, And so he starts to purge everything from their house that belonged to the mom, thinking that this might be the process they need to move on. And in the process of starting to get rid of his wife's stuff, discovers some things that don't add up. And uh, in the process of, I should also say, he's writing a memoir uh, about his wife and her death and their love story. So he's been, so the book has these excerpts throughout. Uh, that are excerpts from his memoir and his memories of Billy that start evolving uh, in the, over the course of the book as he learns things about his wife. So I'm going to read a section from one of the memoir sections uh, that he is writing. So this is in his voice but from the first person point of view because it's his memoir. Jenny was the one who suggested we sneak into the neighbor's pool. This is a better direction for me. <laughs> It was an oppressive summer day, heavy with Midwestern humidity, and our own, oh, and i sorry, let me start over. This is about his sister, Jenny. I should mention sister, Jenny. Jenny was the one who suggested we sneak into the neighbor's pool. It was an oppressive summer day, heavy with Midwestern humidity, and our own shrubby backyard provided no relief from the sun. Our mother had forbidden us to leave the house while she was off doing the shopping. Jenny was 10, I was eight, and we were only just allowed to stay at home alone. After a half hour of playing listlessly with our Atari with a fan positioned at our feet, my sister suddenly lifted her head. Let's go swimming, she said. Now, where, I asked. The Wilsons. She was already standing at the window on her tiptoes, peering out over the hedge into the yard of our neighbors, whose crystalline blue pool had remained woefully unused all summer. They're both at work. They'll never know. My sister had always been the scrappy one, her knees scabby from her skateboard and her report card filled with admonishments from her t-shirt teachers. Whereas I was the good kid, bookish, rule-bound, depressingly dutiful. I'm glad you know better than that, my mom would say to me when my sister came home with yet another bloody nose from a fight at school. But sitting in my room with only books and my Star Wars action figures for company, I wasn't sure that this was really true. Jenny always seemed to be deeply immersed in life, whereas I was skating along the edge, dipping my toe in. So that day, I followed her into the Wilson's yard, clambering over the ornamental hedge, which scraped our shins raw. We left our shorts on the lounge chairs and danced across the the hot concrete, jumping into the water in our underwear and t-shirts. The water so cold that it felt like a slap, leaving us breathless and laughing the sun beating down mercilessly on our faces when we burst up through the surface, spraying diamond droplets in every direction. It was one of those moments when you know what it really means to be alive, to have every cell in your body attuned to the astonishing fact of your existence. This is amazing, I called to my sister. Hell yeah, Jenny replied. I'll always remember my sister, the way she looked as she climbed out of the pool her cropped blonde hair a shiny cap against her head the soaked t-shirt clinging to the boyish planes of her f- chest her face shining with happiness she walked back towards the hedge crouched down like a sprinter double back double backflip she announced and then she broke into a run her knees flying feet akimbo she was on the steaming concrete and then her toes were gripping the tile edge of the pool and then she was impossibly high in the air and then she was deep under the water and she wasn't coming up or or rather she was coming up but in a very strange way upside down her limbs floppy her short hair drifting aimlessly about her head dead man's float I told myself waiting for her to stop joking around and yet something looked wrong stop it I said out loud from where I sat frozen on the steps of the pool. Stop it, Jenny, stop it. I kept saying this to myself over and over, as if when I'd said it enough times, Jenny would finally roll over and laugh at me. Such a scaredy cat, such a sucker. Get your nose out of a book and get a life. Even once I knew for sure that something was terribly, terribly wrong, I still sat there, paralyzed, thinking... I have to call 911. No, I have to swim in and rescue her. I'll do the Heimlich. No CPR. Which one is it? I don't know. I don't know how anyway. I have to call dad at the office. He'll know what to do. No, he'll know we broke into the neighbors and we'll get in trouble. No, that doesn't matter. It was probably only a matter of seconds, and yet it felt like an eternity had passed before I thrashed my way into the water, spluttering through my tears and tugged my sister's horrifyingly leaden body to the steps, propping her there half out of the water. I whacked at her back with the flat of my hand, tried to breathe into her lungs, but her empty eyes told me that it was already too late. And yet I kept shouting, Stop it, Jenny, stop it! as I scrambled back over the hedge to call 911, this time getting a nasty gash on my thigh that would go unnoticed in the days to come. No one blamed me. No one except myself. Your sister was older. She was the one in charge, my father said, as he sat on the edge of my bed. Even if you had known CPR, it wouldn't have helped. She broke her neck. The doctor said it was instantaneous. But I knew he was wrong. I knew that those crucial seconds when I sat there useless had to mean something. And even earlier than that, I was supposed to be the smart one, the responsible one. I should have cut Jenny off when she came up with the idea in the first place. I knew better than that. In the years that followed, I tried to make up for the death of my sister by being even better behaved, as if by doubling my achievements I might somehow mask the loss of an entire child. I learned how to be charming and funny so I could make my parents smile again. I became editor of the high school newspaper, graduated at the top of my class, went to Stanford, got a job in Silicon Valley, dated a string of nice girls with admirable resumes. He must be a real consolation to them, I could hear the neighbors whisper, but I secretly knew I was no consolation at all. So was it any surprise when, at age 26, I met a woman who reminded me of my dead sister all grown up, living on the sharp edge of convention, self-assured down to the bone, that I would thrill to her, that I would leap to make up for all my past failings, to protect her, to sacrifice myself to her, think that by doing so I was somehow being noble, Maybe it was inevitable that I would fall for Billy. Maybe it was inevitable that I would willfully ignore all her faults. Only someone fearful of his own ordinariness would buy so questioningly, so unquestioningly someone else's extraordinariness. Maybe this is why they say love is blind. Who you want people to be makes you blind to who they really are. So I'll take some questions and then we can, you know, all those standing people are probably getting uncomfortable. Um, any questions? Yes, hi Michelle. Congratulations. Thank you.
0: This is amazing and the coverage has been incredible today so I can't wait to read it. Um, so question for you. Becoming a mother since your last book was published and all of the attempts that you had to come up with this amazing book, was, was part of this driven by your own sense of mortality
1: my own sense of mortality being a mother you know it's funny I didn't actually I wouldn't say that I started off this book thinking about my mortality as a mother but I sure thought about it a lot while I was working on it so the question was did become a mother make me think about my own mortality in that is that where this book came from? Um, no, <laughs> but yes. You know, I think I think when you have kids, you think about these things a lot more, and and you know, you watch your own parents, you know, in their seventies, sixties, seventies, eighties, and you realize the process that they went through, and you start feeling your own kind of responsibility to another human being and, and everything that's great about it but also everything that's difficult about it and you imagine how they might feel and you know if things went bad so in that sense yes so
0: yes um, if you don't like this question just reject it and get some because I don't feel it's really fair to ask you but um, I love this phrase the sharp edge of convention mm-hmm. and I'm always tossing thoughts about bourgeois thinking and and, and and fiction that's being built outside of convention. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I look at, right now I'm looking at people like Shirley Jackson, um, who sat in a very interesting marriage and a very interesting suburban academic life. Mm-hmm. And even Amelia Gray, you know, hometown girl here, who's writing these, I think in interview she's actually said that this is how she resonates suburbia and, um, and some... Um, conventional thinking and comes up with these amazing stories, and I'm just wondering if you're thinking about the status of women at all, like these women were when they came up with these very non-conventional narratives, which sort of sort of shocked America. Mm. And because while well, you you write in a very um, domestically satisfying way, um, like maybe even Edith Wharton did. Well, thank you. Okay, you know, so I'm not I'm not knocking that the wrong way, mm-hmm. but. Um, but it's still a scary story you're telling us. And I'm wondering if that's a comment at all on feminism, as some of, some of, you know, Shirley Jackson, Lily Gray, some of the fiction that's coming out right now, that edginess um, is disturbing. So even Didion, even Didion was writing about um, that maybe happiness um, is something remember not something we uh, well
1: i mean I, I i don't know if i can answer your whole question but i do i do i mean yes feminism definitely i'm not going to be talking, but i will say that feminism definitely informed this book um, and You know, the legacy of all women writers who think when have a feminist point of view and think about suburbia and think about, you know, the conventional life and family and parenthood and and expectation of what a woman is supposed to be. And Billy, the character is very much the embodiment of both. Embracing that and completely pushing it away. So she, her life as a mom, you know, she's kind of this woman who's got this conventional mom who bakes brownies and takes her kids to, you know, fairyland and so on and so forth. But she's also got this very kind of edge, this this kind of hidden history that um, pushes back against all of that, and it's been a real battle for her, I think. And that's one of the things that you learn as you're reading the book. And so for me, she embodied that kind of uh, okay. conflict. I think so, yeah. Anyone else? Natasha, and then Shane. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Is there somebody that you write for, like in your mind when you're writing? Do you think of somebody or
1: a particular type of person? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't. I kind of write for myself. I mean, it's hard because at first you're kind of always thinking, "Well, someone like this and you know, who would like this and what kind of writer would like this? But I think in the end I have to write for would I like this? Would I want to read this? Would I be compelled by this? If I read my own words and get bored, that's not a good sign. If I read my own words and think that it's like, you know, pretentious or silly, then that's kind of my, my bellwether. So, okay, Shane, your turn. Uh-huh.
0: And I'm always just curious about other artists' creative process. Was there a, was there a moment when uh, what you wanted to write kind of clicked in for you? And if so, do you
1: remember that? Moment? You know, that's a, as a good question. <laughs> this book came in so many pieces. Um, what I initially started this book thinking it was going to be is not what it ended up being. And I had so many moments of aha along the way, like, oh, this is what this book is going to be, of course, and then that would completely change, and be like, nope, that's not what this book is going to be. And it wasn't, it wasn't, I think the big for me aha moment was when I kind of got almost halfway through, and I'm like, wait a second, I'm writing a mystery. I didn't realize I was writing a mystery. I'm starting, I was just writing the stuff that felt fun, and I liked these moments that I was creating, but I... I realized that I had, was writing something that was kind of genre in a way. Um, and so I had to go back and tear the whole thing apart and reconstruct it as the mystery. And that really changed the whole experience. Yes? I two questions. Uh, what, your comment just led me to this first one. So are you saying that the characters took off on their own? They went their own direction and you followed them? Yes. And, and the second... Um, question I have for you
0: is how hard is it to write that scene in the swimming pool
1: you know what that scene in the swimming pool was really easy to write for in a a weird way I mean it was harrowing to write but it was one of those. You know, sometimes you just sit down and you start writing, and it just comes, and the whole thing just shows your, itself to you. So there's scenes where, like, I just agonized and I pulled my teeth over that one. I sat down and I wrote it, and I barely changed it ever since. But yeah, I mean, it was hard to write. It was emotionally difficult to write, but in a satisfying way, if that makes sense. When you know you're writing something that feels emotionally true, um, and to answer the other question, yes, my character. I write every time I've written a book. I start a book, I have this idea of who a character is, I start to write it, and then they just take off and they do their own thing. And I'm like, okay, I'll just follow you over here now. Don't know what you're doing, why this came to me this way, but, yeah. I'm
0: Meredith. Olive?
1: Olive uh, yes. I'm
0: wondering um, what Olive, which in Olive learns from her mother, what the relationship is at the end of the book, and then also if that has any you know meaning in regard to motherhood in your own life, and Love her in general.
1: Okay. What were you trying to say with Right. Um, without giving any spoilers away, um, Olive kind of starts off with this this weird kind of hero worship of her mom. Um, not weird, but you know she's fifteen, go um, just about to turn, just turned sixteen. Sorry, um, and she had this kind of hero worship of her mom her whole life, and then she was starting to become a teenager and pushing back against her mom a little bit, and then her mom died, and so she's kind of racked with this guilt and this desire that she doesn't know how to reconcile, and so I think a lot of her life has been felt like she needs to emulate her mother, and part of her process of this book is about coming to terms with being her own person outside of her mother. Her mother was a very big personality and so she needs to find her own self. If that makes sense.
0: Two part question that's related to each other. One is, did you have a like a beginning and an ending and then have to sort out the middle? Because when you write a mystery a lot of times you have to have a sort of an understanding about how it wraps up mm-hmm. how to write it. And then the, the related question is how much rewriting did you get after after you had something that could have been
1: seen as a finished. Um, a lot. <laughs> um, I, you know, I did a lot of. Uh, once I knew what I was doing, I, I mapped it out a lot, um, and then I went through three different endings for this book. And so every time I rethought the ending, I had to go back and tear everything apart and start it over again. in A lot of ways. So, um, so yeah, <laughs> a lot of rewriting with this book. I mean, I started this book in two thousand and. Twelve. The end of the end of two thousand and twelve, and it took me until two thousand sixteen to you know, at late two thousand sixteen to finish. So four years. Yeah. I need to go about researching something that maybe you've never experienced before. Um, read a lot. I read a lot. Um, I mean, I. I, this research for this one was fun I got into oh, giving too much away um, I spent a lot of time researching stories of people who disappeared and that's fascinating there's endless stories about people who disappear both who people who go on hiking trips and, and are never seen again or who people who fake their own deaths people who you know, are found dead and, and thinks they fake their death so I, you know, I played around I did a lot of research into that but you know, the internet is pretty amazing Research, <laughs> and I read some books too, and so on and so forth. Talked to some people, some lawyers mostly to get the legal aspects right. so Yes.
0: I'm looking at the sign for the spirituality cold section. So and <laughs> <Does> I <it, laughs> believe in ghosts. Yeah. Mm. Is it more in writing a book. Did about ghosts
1: actually... That's a good question. Do I believe in ghosts? Um. I spent my childhood being pretty obsessed with ghosts and the paranormal. Um, I would read, I read, I tore through my entire school libraries, uh, everything in the occult, parapsychology, paranormal area, everything. I mean, like the the worst UFO book they had. I read it. Um, And ghost books. I did every book report on that kind of stuff. And then I moved to the big library and I got all their books there. So I've always been obsessed with it. Fascinated by it, I can't, but I don't know that I have blind faith in it. So I want to believe, um, I, I want to believe, but I'm a skeptic. So, and that was kind of the balance I was writing and working with writing this character, like, you know, and this experience she has, these experiences she has, are they real or are they not? Do I believe do I not believe? And so it was, I went back and forth as I wrote this book, you know. Whether I would have believed her or not, whether I do believe her or not, so where where you end where you where she ends is kind of up for the reader's interpretation, I think. Yes. Do you think your skill is a writer improved over the
0: period of three books over a fairly long period of time, or do you think you've seen
1: better story? Ooh, did I get to become a better writer over three books? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think experience, the more you write, the better you get at it. Um, You also, I mean, I think, you know, in seven years I've read uh, 350 more books, um, thought about a lot more story, um, read a lot more fantastic prose, and you absorb that. And then the more practice you have, I don't know, you get better at it. So I'd like to think that this book is better than my first two but I don't know proof is in the pudding right so anyone else yes Pauline hi no because I hadn't sold it <laughs> um, I did not get in trouble with my editor for revising this book because I was I was you know I'd taken so long to get I had a two book deal for my first two books, and then I was kind of out of my own again, and I took a really long time to get to this particular book. And so I had to write almost half of it before I went and sold it. So she didn't see any of the really bad drafts. So, (laughs) no. Is that it? All right, well, thank you, everybody, for um, standing up so long.